You're listening to the Sunday podcast from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Good morning. Man, I love that enthusiasm. Thank you. Hey, good morning to you if you're watching online or at home. We are grateful that you are with us here this morning. Two great announcements. One, a huge thank you to everyone who helped out for Movie on the Lawn. We had hundreds of kids here, plus their parents. And yes, couldn't have done it without you. Everywhere I walked around the building, I saw LifePoint people volunteering, helping out. And just a huge heartfelt thank you for that. Lots of people were there who've never been to Life Point or church before. So we're praying God brings them back and they find the family here that we know God has for them. Secondly, the bathrooms are done. So no more Porta Jones. Yeah. Okay, good. Good. I'm proud of you. I was making sure that didn't get more of an applause than all of the kids at Movie on the Lawn. And you did well. You just gave a light, like, golf clap for that one. Well done, you passed. You can hear the sermon this morning. Matthew 5. We're going to be in Matthew 5. We're talking about the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. How do you cover the greatest sermon ever? You don't. You just try to draw from it and say, God, what what do you have for us? So in this series, The Cost of Discipleship, we've, we've started the first two weeks. We laid the foundation, the framework of the cost of grace, right? Making sure that we are aware that it, is, is this really loud or is it just me? Loud. It's super loud. So we're working on that. Um, <laughs> yes. Cost of discipleship. Where was I? There I am. I found it. We got to be careful from falling into the trap of cheap grace, right? God, God will forgive me. My sins are forgiven. It doesn't matter what I do. We've got to be very careful of allowing that to become our heart and our motto. And then last week we talked about obedience. We talked about how action, the movement of your faith, the uh, taking action towards the words that you speak is the proof of the faith being there, that the two reside together, that they're inseparable. You cannot have faith or say you have faith without there being some sort of action, otherwise you don't have any faith. And so as we laid those foundations for what it is and we looked at what the cost of being a disciple of Christ is, this morning I want to look at the practicality of what it's going to mean to walk it out. And Jesus gave us that in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, he made it so practical to say, here is what it looks like to come after me to pursue after the calling I'm putting out there to be my disciple. And so we're going to look at that this morning, and I hope you today, I'm going to try to focus on one or two main points for us because you couldn't possibly go through the entire Sermon on the Mount and take it all in in one moment. And so we'll take time and uh, go over just a couple. Would you pray with me before we read? Father, we need your help as we interpret this, as we understand it. Lord, we need your help to overcome a sin nature and selfishness and just everything that this world wants to give us. Lord, may we see you and hear you this morning. May you uphold us in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Matthew 5. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
and blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now I want to jump to verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything has been accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. We saw like two totally different tones there, right? The blesseds, the beatitudes, yes, the comforted, like those who mourn will be comforted, those who show mercy will be shown mercy themselves, those who are meek will inherit the earth. I mean, it is just, yeah, yeah. And then he gets to this part in 17, and he's like, oh, by the way, in case you think the coming of the Messiah meant the law was done away with, not even close. Every letter will remain until all the work has been accomplished. I have come to fulfill it, not abolish it. I am the fulfillment of the promises of God Almighty. And so, in, in case you didn't understand that, he doubles down with it and says, allow me to show you what this means. Do not teach a false gospel. Do not teach contrary to what I'm telling you, that the law has been abolished and that you may live any way you want now underneath the grace of God. Rather, continue to walk in it. In fact, walk in it in such a way that you walk in it greater than the Pharisees walk in it. Now, I don't know how that hits you right now, that section of Scripture, but for the people there, the Pharisees were professional holy people, right? Like, even as a pastor today in America, I'm just semi-pro. I wouldn't even call myself professional. I'm like, you know, double A. But Pharisees, those guys were professional holy people. 613 laws, right? That they, that they made up a lot of them just to make sure. In fact, I want to read this for you because this is fantastic. I saw this this week and thought you would enjoy it. 613 rules, 248 were commands. 365 were called prohibitions. And to be sure you never broke 613 rules, they bolstered this by putting around it 1,521 emendations. These were not things that the Bible forbade, but if you didn't do them, it helped you to voluntarily abstain from the other 613 rules. Over 2,000 things that you should abstain from, keep away from, cannot do in order to be righteous. And here's what's crazy. The Pharisees did them all. All right? Have you ever read this verse and fully understand what he's saying here? He says, if I tell you the truth, if your righteousness does not surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you're not getting into heaven. What? What about all that blessed stuff and the meek stuff and the poor stuff? I'm all of those things, God. What's he saying? Why? Why speak such a provocative language as he's sitting amongst his disciples, teaching them and teaching this massive crowd that is gathered? Well, that's what we want to look at this morning. Because in Matthew 11, the apostle is going to record for us that Jesus says, Come to me, take my yoke upon you, and you will find rest for your soul. 
Amen? In the midst of this world today, who would love to have rest for your soul? Maybe your body's not going to get any, but your soul. With some of the major nations in the world preparing for war and strategizing to set up people for war, with inflation starting to ebb towards record highs, right? The pandemic continuing to spread and have another variant and, and more fear every day. In the midst of it, Christ says, take my yoke and you'll have rest for your soul. Did it ever seem as you read, if you've ever read the gospels, did it ever seem like the Pharisees had rest for their souls? Did they ever seem like they rested in their 2,100 good works? Never. These guys are always jockeying for position. They're always hoping to do better and be the best and show God how good they are. They're constantly flaunting the things that they do and making sure others do it as well. They're constantly punishing those who step out of line a little bit. And yet Jesus says, if you do not have the righteousness greater than theirs, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And yet he also says that his yoke is easy. You see, the Christian life assumes the radical change first. It does not say obey Christ, and in order to uh, get the change, you must obey him. It says you obey Christ because you have received the change. This is the, what is predicating the whole Sermon on the Mount. This is what is so radical to these people, and oddly enough, still 2,000 years to us today, is that I do not follow Christ and he begins to change my life. He says, I have given you the change. When my spirit comes in and you receive my righteousness, which has been granted to you, the grace of the cross, you have received the change. Now walk in it. The hardest part for us is believing we have it, right? Believe you have the change. Believe that the grace of God is covering you. I can forgive. I can love. I can sacrifice. I can be patient. I can humble myself. I don't need to do it in order to be righteous. I can do it because it's already been given to me to do it. So how do we receive this? How do we live as a Christian? The Sermon on the Mount tells us what we are to do in the Christian life, why we are to do it, and how we are to do it. So I want to look here at some of the specifics of what Jesus says we're supposed to be doing in the world and look at some of these essential principles as we walk towards this. The first one I want to look at is our attitude toward the world. Matthew 5.13 says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled under foot. So here's the thing. We in America as consumers use salt primarily for one purpose, to flavor things, right? We flavor things that taste bland. We say that needs more salt. Potato chips, more salt, right? Because a potato is literally about the blandest thing. It looks like a rock and it grows in the dirt and then we cover it in salt and we eat them until we're sick. That's what we do. That's what you do and me, right? It, we flavor things. But that's not the purpose of salt in the time of Christ. That's not how it would have been received. Salt was used as a preservative to preserve things from decaying, from breaking down, from falling apart. 
So when he says you are the salt of the earth, what he is saying is that when my disciples go into any given community, neighborhood, whatever, that they are the salt that will begin to hold together a community that is decaying from sin. That's the purpose. You want to know what happens to the church when the church is not a preservative, it's a flavoring? You have a church that we see in America today. All flavor, no foundation, right? Popularity and big and, and, do, and let's bring the world in and, and let it feel like a concert that they go to in the world or an event they go to in the world and then they'll come to us. It's all flavor. There's no preservative. Preservative is the action, the work of it to keep from the, the cities from breaking down. Martin Luther figured this out, right? Martin Luther figured this out, and as he was a monk, isolating himself from the world, trying to become the greatest Christ follower he could be in the Catholic Church, God came to him and said, what are you doing? I didn't call you to separate yourself into this tiny little group. I called you to go into the community. As long as you keep the salt, right, in its container, it cannot do any good. And when a Christian goes and they pull themselves away from the world and they pull all their activities away from the world, they're essentially taking the very salt that will help the community and they're saying, no thanks, not for you. You don't get it. So Martin Luther saw that. He was broken by it. He saw how the church held all the scriptures, how the, they didn't teach the people to read. They, did, they wouldn't translate it into languages that they could read. And then they held all the power. And then he saw all the monks, all the super professional righteous men of his time separating themselves from the people. And he said, my goodness, what are we doing? And he broke apart from it. And well, that's where you get the Reformation. We're called to be salt. We're called to be in cities that are breaking down and to provide preservation, to provide unity. And our salt is evident by what? This is crazy. Good deeds. Good deeds. That's how it says you'll be known by the things that we do, the deeds of compassion. When we invest into other people, our talent and our resources, it will be evidence that there is something different about God's sons and daughters. There's something different. And as, if all we do is speak it, if all we do is walk around and pound our Bibles and tell others not to sin, there's no evidence, there's no salt there. That's just like taking a salt shaker to somebody who's got really bland potato and saying, look what I have. Jesus says, go sprinkle the salt on that potato. Show them how good it is. Show them what it's like to have peace and rest for your soul. Amen? Secondly, it says, you've heard it said, you shall not kill. I say, if you attack with your tongue, right? If you say you hate your brother, if you say raka was the word, essentially nothing. To tell your brother they are nothing. They are worthless. I say, if you do that, you've already committed murder. So Jesus is going to double down on one of the biggest commandments, the one that for all of humanity, we know this is wrong, this is no good, you cannot murder somebody else, you cannot take a life. And he's going to say, I tell you this, not just the physical action of taking a life, but by in your heart, you don't even have to speak the words Jesus said. I don't have to look at you and say, you're a terrible person. I would never. Jesus says, if I just think it in my heart, maybe that one, right, yeah. Then nobody has to know about it. Jesus says, if you do that, you've already committed murder. Why is he upping the ante on this? Why is he making this so, so much higher? 
Remember, along with the disciples and the crowd, there are Pharisees listening. And Pharisees know darn well there are people they hate. There are people that they count as worthless, as raka, as nothing. And now Jesus has just taken every one of these Pharisees who have followed 2,150 different types of commandments, and he said, oh, by the way, this one, this big one you feel like you're nailing right now, you actually are failing every single day to it. Why? Because that man or that woman that you say is nothing is made in my image. They're my creation. I love them. I'm going to die for them. They are worth it. And you are saying they're not. You are taking what God has said is good and you are saying it's evil. Have you ever thought about it like that? This person that I hate, this family member I can't stand with, no, with Thanksgiving coming up, have you ever thought about that? That when, when I hate them, when I refuse to give forgiveness, when I refuse to act in forgiveness, right? Not just say I forgive you, but then have my action show it, that what you're saying is you're not worth it. Being made in the image of God, you're not worth my forgiveness. I'm sorry. Jesus says if you've done that, you've already committed murder. I don't want Christians in theory. I want Christians in practice. And so he says, here's how. And then after this, he moves on to the only natural, obvious uh, subject, sex. If you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Wait, wait a minute. You mean just, just looking? Yeah, you've already committed adultery. What's he saying now? What he's calling us to is an integrity. Integrity means that it is a call to consistency. Think of that as a definition of integrity. It's a call to consistency. Do my actions match my words? If I say I will do this, do I do it or do I do this? Right? That's what integrity is. Have you ever tried to answer what is integrity and you say someone who has integrity? Don't, no, that doesn't mean it. It's someone who is consistent, right? There's a concern for consistency, so it's a priority. And in the same way, in sexuality, Jesus is going to lay down this, this idea and this understanding that this sexuality is not this uh, different thing for male and female. In fact, if you just lust after someone else in your heart. You see, Jesus taught, and the Bible teaches, and we, ought, we know this to be true, even if you've never been in church, that sex is not a physical act alone, but it is a physical and spiritual. And so when you take the spiritual away and you steal just the physical from the person... He says, you're not acting with consistency. What you're doing is you're saying, you are only worth this to me, but not this. I only want the physical, but I don't want to deal with the spiritual of who you are. And Jesus says, I didn't create you to be like that. I created you to be a mind-body unity. And so when you take sex and you take the spiritual out of it, you have the world we live in today with pornography being the largest multi-billion dollar industry and searches on the internet across the world. Because we took, we did not take what he said here in his sermon to heart when he said, if you just look, you've committed adultery. Integrity, what he's asking for is a concern for being consistent with the things that you say you are. He moves on and he says, I also want you to have integrity with your words. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. Do not swear. Do not, you do not need to swear on anything by this or by that. I swear to God. I swear on my mother's grave. I swear on a stack of Bibles. 
You know what you're telling somebody when you say that? Every other time that I don't swear like this, I may be lying to you. Just heads up. Like, that's what you're saying, right? You're saying, look, this one's so important, I'll swear on a stack of Bibles. As if one wasn't enough, you need a stack. Jesus says, don't do that. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. One of my favorite uh, scriptures that I was taught as a kid, my dad had us memorize Psalm 15, which is about what does it mean to be a man of God? And I believe it's the second half of verse three. It says, a man of God is a man who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Meaning he says yes to something and even when it hurts, he doesn't change. Marriage, that's a big one, right? You say you're going to be somewhere to help somebody, but something more fun comes up, and you say, nope, I'm still going to be there. I said yes, my word, right? I gave my word. And you don't need to give your word by swearing to anything. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Same as he's talking about with sex, integrity. Have integrity, concern to be consistent with the things you say you're going to do. These are very practical, aren't they? You know how often you hear a message in your church and you say, how, well, how can I practically go do that? I am giving you very practical things that Jesus lays out in the sermon. Taking the whole Sermon on the Mount, two and a half chapters, and I'm trying to break it down into some very practical things. If you said you're going to do something, do it, even if it hurts. He says, give to the poor, but don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, and don't trumpet it abroad that you are. All right. So that last part's sort of easy to understand. Do not brag about how much you're giving away or that you're giving away, right? That seems fairly, don't trumpet it abroad. What does it mean when he says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing? Because here is another, this, <laughs> this is why this sermon is so rich and there's so much there. This is another groundbreaking, absolutely mind-blowing, fundamental lesson Jesus is teaching these people. Wait, you mean to tell me that I need to give and give, you know, on behalf of God and love people on behalf of God but can't show others what I'm giving? I mean, this is what the Pharisees did. They walked through the towns and they showed how much they were giving and they showed the percentage of what they were giving so that others can look and be like, there's a holy man, look at all that money he gave. There's a holy man, look at him keeping the law on the Sabbath. There's a holy man. Jesus says, do not do that. And then he says this thing, do not let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. You see, what he's getting at here is at the heart of every one of those who have given because he knows that they don't give because they actually love the poor. They give in order to feel superior. They give in order to fulfill a rule. They give in order to get maybe further in the eyes of God. Do you hear me? This is how everybody apart from God gives. I don't care who you are, this is how we give. I felt so good I gave today. I felt so good when I gave the guy in a corner $10. I felt so good. And there's this, and if you're not careful, there's this superiority that becomes, begins to come over you. And what's crazy, here's what's really crazy. If you're not giving the way Jesus tells you to give, and, the, and you begin to give more and more and more, it actually gets worse. You would think it actually gets better. You would think the more you gave, like the more you would start to love people and the more humble you'd become. But the fact of the matter is, when you don't give like Jesus tells you to give, not letting the right hand know what the left hand is doing, it actually gets worse. You become more proudful. You feel more superior. You begin to find more identity in the fact that you get to give money away to all these people who have nothing. 
and you become unto yourself this sort of God complex. And so Jesus so tenderly, so carefully says, be careful. Do not pity the poor. Do not show pity to the poor. Love them. But I don't. That's why you need me. This is what he's saying. That's why you need me. I know you don't. I know you don't. And then he moves on and he says, don't worry. He commands us actually not to worry. He says, if you worry about your clothes, if you worry about your life or your food or your circumstances, guess what? There's more to life than all that. Look at the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. Are they not taken care of? How much more valuable are you to me than them? And this one, if you look at the wording, it is a command. Do not be anxious. Did you know that? It's a command. In the middle of today's world, do you see, this is just a rhetorical question, so don't need, do you see Christians less anxious, just as anxious, or more anxious as the rest of the world in the midst of the last year and a half? Right? Would you say that there is like a clear-cut line, like, wow, how awesome, the Christian community in the midst of worldwide chaos, they followed that verse, and there was none anxious. It was awesome. <laughs> it should be a gut check, right? It should make a stop and say, Jesus didn't speak these words because he was bored. This is the truth. This is the foundation of life in this sermon. He says, do not be anxious. Why? Because when we're not anxious, we are pouring out salt in our community. And the community says, how? How, when everyone else is worried about their well-being, are you not? I got to know. I want more of what that guy has. How is he so calm? How does he have peace in the midst of all of this upheaval? And then lastly here, this is a big one. He says, judge not lest ye be judged. Now, we have butchered this on, on both sides so badly that when you hear those words, I promise, and you can just sort of give me one of these, as soon as you heard those words, you already had a meaning in your head. You either have heard it said to you, or it's like a that's right, only God will judge me thing, which... <laughs> that's horrifying, but okay, if that's what you want. Like this whole idea, or it's this, uh, oh boy, it's not going to be that thing where I'm not allowed to tell other people what to do because, right? And so we instantly have these thoughts that go on in our head when we hear that because the truth of the matter is we haven't taken judge not lest you be judged in context of what it is Christ has called us to do throughout the entire sermon, right? It's not an individual argument. It's not a thing that should be taken apart from the rest of the sermon. Look at it in the context of the whole sermon. When someone persecutes you, he says, turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. Later, he says, if someone wrongs you, don't judge them. So this has been preached and this has been felt. What it means is that if I get slapped here, I need to turn and offer him this one so they can slap me here. Do you think that what Jesus is really saying in the middle of his sermon is, I want my followers to be doormats. I want you to lie down and allow yourself to be kicked until you cannot move. That is a righteous thing to do. Is that what he's saying? It is it not in line with anything else that I have read that he is telling you to do that? What is he saying then? Well, 
If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. In that time, the cheek represented two things. If you slap somebody, it was essentially saying you're dead to me, you're out of the family, or I hate you, or that's an enemy, or you punch him, right? The other thing, as you'll see all throughout the Bible when it says they were greeted with a holy kiss, is to kiss someone on the cheek was a sign of friendship, a sign of family. You understand? So when he talks about the cheek here, this isn't just our, you know, interpretation of punching somebody and then what he's saying is, I want my disciples to be ones who can have somebody slap them and it will not take away from the person who slapped them the love that they have for them that they will not stop seeking the person's redemption, that they can be slapped by an enemy and that person's soul is still more important to them than whatever argument they have between themselves. This is what I want my disciples to do. That's what he says by turn the other cheek. You know what he's not saying? He's not saying be quiet and don't do anything. He's not saying stick your head in the sand when culture is crowding around the Bible and telling you these things are wrong and just say, well, it's not my job to do anything about it. I better turn another cheek. He's not saying to be quiet and to not say anything to a loved one or a friend who is getting in trouble or doing something that's harming them or their family. You want to know why? That's easy. (laughs) That's what we all want to do. Nobody in here likes conflict, right? Nobody in here likes having that conversation. And Jesus says, but my sons and daughters will have that conversation. They will enter into conflict with one another because that is what is loving to one another. But he gives this this, uh, precedent that must come first. He says, do not look at the speck in your brother's eye without first looking at the what? Speck in your own? The log in your own eye. And what he's saying by that is, If you cannot go to them in love, if their absolute salvation and redemption is not your primary driving force, if you do not see them as I see them, then you have no business going before them because you will not go before them in love. You will not go before them with their salvation in mind. You are just going before them to either make your life easier because they're making your life hell or again, that superiority feeling of, oh, look, finally, This guy who always has it together doesn't have it together so much right now. In the name of the Lord, I'm going to go to him and let him know that what he's doing is pretty bad. Jesus says, don't you dare do that. Don't you dare. He's not calling us to something easy, friends. It would be easy to let people walk all over you. It would be easy to stick your head in the sand. He's saying, come to me. Allow the power of my Holy Spirit to change you. Give to me the things that you're hanging on to. You don't think they deserve forgiveness? Give it to me. Give it to me. Right? You don't think they deserve to be at the family gathering? Give it to me. Trust me. Jesus is saying, I want you to cancel those debts on my behalf because when you do, you become the salt and the light of the world. And you could see how that's possible, right? Look at the book of Acts. How it was possible that Jesus became the salt and the light of the world. Because his disciples went out and did this. They went out and they were the salt. They loved others. They loved their enemies. The prison doors broke open and he didn't leave, right? Why didn't he leave? Because he loved that man who was paid to sit there and keep him in jail. He actually loved him. 
the world changed not because Christianity was a better religion than the ones that were already there. Do you understand that? Do you, though? The world changed because Christ, God himself, came down in the form of man and said, I want the power that is mine to be yours. I want life that is mine to be yours, and I will exchange it for your life. You can give me your dead, broken, decaying soul, and I will give you new life. And what we struggle with today is the actual receiving of that new life. We'll say the words, we'll say the prayer, we'll come to church, we'll do all the rules, but when it comes to actually trusting that he's got us, so we don't need to be anxious, when it comes to actually trusting that if we give forgiveness, that it won't cause us more pain, but it'll actually bring us freedom, when it comes to giving of our time and our money in ways that are sacrificial and trusting that he's got us, he's upholding us in it, that is where we fall desperately short in this country. In a country with so much wealth, I've said this so many times, it's always going to be very difficult to live sacrificially. To be a Christian means everything has changed. Your relationship with the world and to individuals is different. It's different. It can't look the same. If you look the same, then you should question your walk with the Lord. Right? I do this. This isn't a, a, like a condemnation. I do this. When I get upset at somebody driving, I instantly stop and say, the whole world gets upset when they get cut off. That's, that's the natural response. We invented a signature that we use with our finger to show the person how displeased we are with them. That's what the world did. We invented that just to let them know, I am displeased with the decision you just made. So when I see myself angry and I see that root start to rise up, if I don't stop and say, wait a minute, I'm called to live differently. I'm called to have a relationship with the world that's different than the world has with itself. I better stop and say, Lord, where is my walk with you right now? It's one thing to have it come out of nowhere. It's another thing if it's every single day you drive to work. You might really want to stop and say, am I walking with the Lord or did I just say a prayer when I was 18 years old? Your relationship to riches and the poor becomes different. Your relationship to your body becomes different. It's my body. I have hormones. They have, you, have to, you have to do this. You can't expect this. You can't expect you hear that all the time in this generation, as if there's somehow this generation is so different that the idea of virginity is just an impossibility. These poor, poor kids of the 2000s, they must have their sex. I joke, but that's exactly the message. You go to any high school right now and they will tell you, oh no, you can't keep this from them. That's a terrible thing to say. It's a lie. It's just another lie. That's what the world does. God says your relationship to your body is different. I want one where you honor yourself and you honor the person you're with. And when you honor one another, you walk away from the relationship both lifted, or not walk away from the relationship, you walk away from the experience both lifted up rather than torn down. Your relationship to your words is different. Your relationship to your mind becomes different. Look at the breadth of what Jesus says, right? I call you to a life of sacrifice, and in that sacrifice, I will give you a deep peace which you will not find anyone else. I call you to a life of gentle fearlessness and absolute integrity. Matthew 5.14, he says, you are the light of the world. You can see why the world is not changing 
in America because the church is not being the salt and the light. Remember the song, I will not hide my light under a bush, oh no. We're hiding our light in a time when the world wants to see Christians not be anxious, be kind and sacrificial, forgive, love their neighbor as themselves. They're seeing the, the church look exactly like them, but then go to church on Sunday and pretend to be different. This is what the world sees in large, you hear me? This is the struggle right now. And so how do we rebel against that struggle? Let's, let's be a rebellious people, okay? It's here today. If you could attend LifePoint, would you rebel with me? <laughs> We're all going to rebel. Nobody will get in trouble. Let's not do that. Actually be the salt. Be the light. There are some simple things I laid out today, and the fact of the matter is we say, I could never do that. Of course you could. You just need to trust the Lord with it. As we, be, as we close here, I want to close with this one last thing that I said. He said, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What could he possibly mean by that? One of the Beatitudes was, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you hunger for righteousness? Do you hunger for a bigger house, a better job, more time, a nicer vacation, a bigger car? Or do you hunger for righteousness? He said, blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. You see, the thing about the Pharisees is that they did hunger for righteousness. They went about it the wrong way, but they hungered for it. And when Jesus says, if you don't hunger for it like the Pharisees did, you will not enter the kingdom, oh, greater than the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You see, what Jesus is doing in this Sermon on the Mount here is he's not just telling you how to live a better life, how to live a moral life, how to obey the law. He didn't come just to explain the law more clearly. He came and he's saying, I am the Sermon on the Mount. I am these things. I am peace and patience and kindness and love and forgiveness. And so when he went to that cross and he was forsaken by the Father, he says, I have been forsaken so you don't have to be. Come and follow after me. I will uphold you. I will allow you to do it. And this is the life he's calling us into. I am the Sermon on the Mount. He is that thing greater than the, what the Pharisees were pursuing after. They were pursuing after a righteousness that was a righteousness unto itself. Jesus says, you pursue after me and you're pursuing after the ultimate righteousness. In fact, if you look at the word that he uses there, it's a different word that Greek commentators will tell you. He changes the tone and the word he's doing is not just righteousness, but the word is ultimate righteousness. It's like an all-encompassing righteousness. That's what Jesus was leading the people to and that's what he's still calling you and I to to follow after, to trust him. There's some practical ways for us to take that foundation of costly grace and walk in obedience with it. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Lord, help us to see this, that the Sermon on the Mount is not just another sermon with more rules, but it is an introduction <laughs> to you. It is a call to follow you. You are the sermon, Lord. Your life was the living example of the sermon. Your death on the cross was the payment, and your resurrection is the victory, Lord.
I pray for those in here who call themselves Christian to assess their heart, to take an honest look with the help of your Holy Spirit and to say, God, help me. Help me in these areas where I'm weak. Lord, I want so badly for this place, not the building, but the people who are a part of it, to be the salt and the light of this area out here. To go out and be in the communities and be at the workplaces and the neighborhood events and parties. Lord, and just let that salt be everywhere. As we prepare our hearts for communion, just take this next couple minutes and, and you talk with God. Whatever he's talking with you about, whatever hit your heart today, you talk with God right now. And then we'll take communion together. disciples he took bread and broke it and he told them this is my body it has been given to you and so Lord as we sit here now together and we've broken bread together we thank you and we eat as we receive this unto ourselves in Jesus name took the cup and he gave thanks and he said this is my blood given poured out for the forgiveness of sin as we drink together we remember that we are not covered by the things of the world or by morals but by the blood of Christ thank you Lord